I wonder to what extent Brexit is part of a larger global wave against the sort of triumph of liberalism and globalization that people like Fukuyama were talking about in the 1990s, you know, that we had a bright future with economic growth all over the world, all boats lifted together. But that doesn't seem to have been the case. In America, we've seen the kind of backlash against it. But do you think Brexit is the manifestation of a similar sort of emotion in the UK? To an extent, yeah. I mean, there's more to it than that. I think there were a significant number of people in the UK who genuinely didn't like the European Union and didn't like the fact that we were members of it. And I think you shouldn't downplay that. But yeah, there was a broader thing going on. And in many ways, that sort of pushback against the economic and political status quo is something that is common across a number of states. You see it in America very clearly. You see it to a certain extent in other European countries. You see it to a certain extent in India. And I think it is about both Economic and political alienation, that is to say, people who ne- who hadn't necessarily benefited from globalization or from sort of liberal economic policies, equally people whose values were different to the values espoused by sort of mainstream politics. I and mean, if you think about the UK in 2015, it was a country where both major political parties had to a greater or lesser extent espoused economic and social liberalism. And a lot of people weren't necessarily fans of of either of those things. The classic declinist argument about the UK is that we sort of peaked before the First World War, and it's been slowly but steadily downhill ever since. And I think it was an American who famously said after the Second World War that we were a post-imperial power looking for a new role in the world. I mean, do you think that the Brexit movement is sort of part of that struggle to rediscover that sort of top nation identity? Or do you think it's sort of subtler than that? I think I'd just sort of pick you up on the idea of Brexit movement. There were lots of Brexit movements and lots of people who supported Brexit for many and sometimes contradictory reasons. So for some people, uh, Brexit was about, you know, the UK becoming more open to the world. That's to say, more global trade as a result of Brexit, the ability to control immigration, but not necessarily reduce it because of Brexit. There were others who saw things very, very differently. So I think it's it's worth pointing out that actually one of the key defining features of Brexit was a number of people supported it for a variety of different reasons. But for some people, yes. And we remember we went through that phase a few years ago of Empire 2.0. For a number of people, yes, this was about the UK sort of re-establishing the global heft it used to have, in their view. When you did your BBC programme, you you went to Berlin, and I think you pretty successfully rejected the David Davis argument that BMW and Mercedes and German manufacturers were going to sort of twist the arm of them in Brussels and get this, this sort of superb deal. And Tell us what you heard when you were speaking to the business people in in Berlin, because this is a fascinating subject. Well, perhaps the most interesting thing I heard, I'm feeling slightly pleased with myself for actually remembering because it was so long ago, is one guy was saying in response to that question, but surely, you know, your business depends on trading with the United Kingdom, which is a big market for you. And he said, yeah, but you've got to remember that this is about politics. So a lot of German companies trade a lot with Russia. And in the wake of Russian intervention in the Crimea, 
in 2014, there were sanctions imposed, and it was put it was absolutely clear-cut to all of us that whatever our economic interests are, the political interests of Germany are going to trump them, and we're just going to have to suck it up. And here again, we're very, very clear, we're just going to have to suck it up, because for Germany, the sanctity of the single market, the primacy of the European project are absolutely front and centre in our politics. And if that means significant trade barriers between Germany and the UK, then that's how it's going to be. Now, what we've seen, and your organisation has shown this very clearly is that it's the non-tariff barriers that are causing the damage. And organisations like Tesco or BMW are large enough with enough experts in supply chains moving things around to be able to hurdle those barriers successfully. But the evidence seems to suggest so far that it's small and medium-sized businesses, many of whom used to export from the UK into Europe, who've almost given up completely because the amounts of stuff that they're selling are, are too small to make it worthwhile. And all the agro around red tape is meaning they're looking elsewhere. Is that what you found? Yeah. Uh, a colleague called Thomas Sampson at the London School of Economics, along with his collaborators, did a very detailed piece of research looking at the trading relationship between the UK and the European Union. And so the findings were fascinating and, and in some ways counterintuitive. But you're absolutely right. When it comes to UK exports to the European Union, even though they have essentially got back to pre-trade and cooperation agreement levels, which might be sort of surprising on the surface, the composition of that trade has changed in the sense that far fewer small companies now are trading with the European Union than was the case before Brexit. I should just add, before I come back to some of the counterintuitive bits of Thomas's work, that actually during the... Brexit process. I had the privilege of spending a bit of time with some of the people who dealt with supply chain issues for supermarkets. And I have to say, I'll never take supermarkets for granted again, because these are sort of the smartest people I've had to deal with. And just listening to them talking about how they were planning for a potential no-deal Brexit scenario and their warehousing sort of strategies and things like this, it was just the, the sheer complexity of things we take for granted in the way of trade is mind-boggling. But back to Thomas's thing, that what, what was counterintuitive about his work is this. Our exports to the European Union have just about got back to pre-TCA levels. Our imports from the European Union haven't. And the reason that's weird is because the EU has put in place all the checks that uh, the TCA requires, whereas we haven't put in place all the checks that the TCA requires, which implies that trading from the EU to the UK is easier than it is from the UK to the EU. So there is a dilemma. Why, why has trade in from the European Union been affected more? And there we could only speculate. And I think the speculation is that a lot of European firms, for whom we're an important but perhaps not the most important market, have decided, look, one day they're going to get their act together. They're going to impose all the checks. It's going to require paperwork. That is a pain. So we need to find ourselves different markets and different customers. And my suspicion is that's what's happening the other way around. I think one of the other points that you make really powerfully is that the Brexit divide is a values-based thing and that people really haven't moved that far since 2016. But you have said, and you've researched, that the number of people, the percentage who think that Brexit's been handled badly is actually now quite high and, and going up. 
But I suppose the question that begs is, could it have been handled well? Because it was such a fantastically complicated thing and everybody was, you know, hearing oven ready and all the rest of it. Whereas those with any knowledge of international supply chains, trade and economics knew that something like that was going to be hugely complex. It was always going to be complicated. That is true. Leaving the European Union was always going to be complicated and arguably uniquely complicated for the United Kingdom because of the situation in Northern Ireland. So there was that added complexity. I think there were mistakes made in the politics. Some of these were sort of sort of circumstantial issues. But think about it this way. So from very, very early on, one of the issues we had to deal with was the fact that Theresa May never had to go through a full leadership process. And as a result of that, she never had to lay out her vision for Brexit completely, have it exposed to debate within amongst both Conservative MPs and then subsequently Conservative Party members, and get backing from those MPs and memberships for that vision. I think if she had, and if she'd won on the back of a vision that had garnered support in the party, it would have been harder for her own MPs to turn against their plans quite so quickly. Her, her, her ideas would have enjoyed a legitimacy within the party that they didn't. And the second thing, of course, was that Theresa May, because she had even, albeit sotto voce, supported Remain during the referendum campaign, felt that her political priority was to prove her Brexit credentials to the sort of hard Brexit wing of her party, which meant that she spent most of the first year of her premiership supporting a hard version of Brexit and thereby dividing her party and, and making it, I think, harder to get some kind of parliamentary majority. I'm slightly clutching at straws here because, as you say, this is always going to be difficult. The fundamental problem with Brexit is this. There is no majority in the United Kingdom for any specific outcome. Yes, there was a majority that voted for Brexit, but continually, whether it was in Parliament on those indicative votes, 1st of April 2019, where there was no majority for any option, or amongst public opinion, where repeated polling showed that you couldn't get to 50% for a soft Brexit, hard Brexit, no Brexit. The problem was we are genuinely divided over it. And so in retrospect, it was probably unsurprising that we found it so hard to come to a solution. And the other point that you've made consistently is that if there is any any movement in the numbers, it's because the levers who tend to be older are dying off and the young tend to be remainers. And it's the young that one needs to think about because it's a point that Eric made yesterday. There's a diminished opportunity for them now. Our kids before 2016 would have been able to go to any country in Europe and work and, you know, pick up a language and see how another country and its society works. And that's now been denied them, hasn't it? And we are in this rather odd position where all those sorts of things that we were able to do as younger people are going to be blocked off from the young now. That's definitely true. I mean, we've lost rights as a result of Brexit, I suppose. You know, there are trade-offs across the piece in Brexit. The trade-off here was that we get to control who comes into our country and have an immigration policy over which we can sort of say we, we, we now have control. And for some people, that was very, very important indeed. Maybe for people who didn't aspire for themselves or their kids to go to university and to do Erasmus and to go and learn a foreign language, that was slightly more important than the rights of freedom of movement that, as far as they saw, apply to other people and not them. So, yeah, there are clearly trade-offs and there are clearly things that we could do 
as part of the European Union that we no longer can. And it goes broader than that, of course. I think some of the impacts of Brexit have yet to be felt because many of those services providers, architects, lawyers, even, yes, academics, who help make up what we, what was a significant and healthy trade surplus in services with the European Union, haven't yet, post-pandemic, got back into the swing of travelling to European states to do their businesses. And I think for many of them, when they start doing it, they're going to be in for a shock because the trade deal, of course, contains precious little in the way of provisions to make that services trade easy. And musicians. Musicians are creative industries as well. We have to wait and see whether or not down the line, when this is less politically toxic, future UK government revisits some of these things. But for the moment, yeah, traveling to European countries for work, is a lot more complicated than it was. We're seeing slight signs from from Labour that they're trying to frame Brexit as an economic and not a values issue, because it's a very tricky area for them, isn't it? They can't do what the Liberal Democrats have done and say that they're still completely pro-Europe and that they would begin a negotiation to go back in. What it seems to me Rachel Reeves is sort of saying is that it was an economic mistake how can they develop that and do something about it? I think she's absolutely not saying that Brexit was an economic mistake. <laughs> I think what she's saying is the, the, the form of Brexit that the Prime Minister chose is redolent of the Conservative approach to the economy, that is to say, making the cost of living crisis worse. Now, I think Labour need to get Leave voters back. Labour are sensitive to the dangers of being cast as the party of Remain, not least because their leader was one of the people who identified with the sort of shift of position in favour of a second referendum, which doesn't help them. What Labour will do in real terms if they came into power over Brexit is very limited. They might sign a veterinary agreement with the EU that will help reduce checks at borders. They might potentially try and address that mobility issue we were talking about with regard to service providers and the creative industries, but they're not going to do a wholesale renegotiation of the deal. They're not going to bring back free movement. The big question at the moment, of course, is whether Labour have the guts even to do that, because you're right, Rachel does seem to be touching on this issue of Brexit as an economic issue, but for the most part, the Labour leadership seem content not to talk about Brexit at all. So, for instance, one indicator of this is, as far as I know, they haven't even appointed anyone to shadow Jacob Rees-Mogg which speaks to the fact that they'd rather not be talking about this. Whether or not, when we come to the next election, where all the signs are that the Tories are going to be very, very keen to talk about Brexit, whether or not Labour can get away with simply pretending it doesn't exist and therefore not talking about it, I do not know. But I'd be surprised if they could get away with that, to be honest. 